Thank you, General and the leaders of uh, Donville. It's a great honour and privilege to be with you. He asked me to give a, a small introduction of myself, so I better give you some background before you believe in me. <laughs> I came here, I came to the second best city of Australia, Sydney, to study as a student in high school and university. I was born into a Buddhist Taoist family, and by God's grace, I heard the gospel for the first time at the Billy Graham crusade. I've never heard of Billy Graham, and I thought he was a rock singer. <laughs> so I was invited to a free rock concert and I went along. And I got rocked by, by the message of the gospel. So it's been a glorious uh, since 1979 to now. It's a great joy to be with you. With you. Adam Road Presbyterian Church, um, we send our greetings to you. Our founding church is Princep Street Presbyterian Church. If you ever go to Singapore, it's the oldest living church in Singapore. It was founded in 1843. And so it's 180 years old. Most of the people there are also old, all right? <laughs> Not that old. Let's listen to God's word. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then we see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as been fully known. So now, faith, hope and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Have you ever lost anything? Maybe you should ask a more light-hearted question. Have you ever misplaced anything? Of course, from day to day, you and I misplace things. And when you misplace something or lose something, how hard do you look for it? How hard, with what intensity we look for something that we misplace or lose, will show how precious that particular thing is to us. So for my wife Mona, when she misplaces her iPad, it's like the whole world has come to an end. You know why? Because on that iPad, She's connected to the most important thing in her life, besides the Lord Jesus, Korean dramas. <laughs> I wear spectacles and glasses. If I misplace my glasses, which is a lot of the time, the whole world seems to have come to an end. Right? I'll call for help from her, from my daughter, and they'll come looking for my glasses. I want to ask you, what about you, in your home from day to day? What is it that you would lose 
that you think the whole world has come to an end, I would suggest it's the phone. If you lose this, it's as if you've lost your whole life. If you travel to a new country, the, travel to a new place, a new city for a holiday or something, right? You, the first thing you ask is not, is my wife okay, but is there Wi-Fi? Right? Without Wi-Fi, you die, and I die, right? Quickly, very quickly. I was preaching in a church camp in Malaysia, and after one of the talks, you know, a church camp, they give four or five talks in a row from a particular book, and I saw people gather around this older lady, and she was distraught, of course, and I found out in hindsight that the son who was studying in America had gone for one of those hikes or walks in the parks, the national park, and he was lost, and they hadn't found him. And by the time I spoke at the camp, they still hadn't found him. It was now months on end, and they never found him. How hard do you think the parents would have looked for their son? How hard, with what intensity and passion, we look for something or someone who will show the value of that person or that thing for us? I want to suggest to you that the most missing virtue in the world is love. The most missing experience of your life is love. In all your relationships, whether you're single or married or in family, and I want to suggest to you that though we are the church of Jesus Christ and the commandment of the Lord Jesus to us was in John 13 to 34, 13, 34 to 35, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another as I have loved you. And so why is love the most missing virtue in the church of Jesus Christ, which has been redeemed and purchased by the love of Christ? That is the message that is here in 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth in 2,000 years ago was arguably the most gifted church of the New Testament churches. Right? But it was also perhaps the most problematic, if I could use the word, ungodly church of the New Testament. And so in chapters 1 to 4, there are problems about leadership, squabbling about who is the better pastor between Paul, Apollos and Cephas or Peter, and factions started to break out within them. It wasn't a problem caused by the pastors. It was a problem caused by the Corinthian Christians who thought of their pastors as patrons. And you know what patronage is? It may not work in, in, in Australia, but it works in three quarters of the world, where politics is all corrupt, and you arrive in the city in the Roman Empire, and Corinth was a major city besides Rome as the capital. If you arrive in the city, put, hoping to put your children into a school system, hoping to find a job, hoping to start a business, if you arrive in a new place without a patron, you are a sitting duck. You need a patron of that city to find new connections, to open doors for you. So they thought of the their pastors, beginning with Paul and Apollos later and Cephas, as patrons. Which one would open more doors for them? And for four chapters, Paul says, all that matters is Jesus. We are merely servants of the gospel. We are not patrons. By chapter 5, you hear them. They are quarreling among each other. 
Do you ever have quarrels here in DPC? I shouldn't ask. I'll never be invited back again, right? Of course, every church has these petty quarrels, right? And they quarrel so much, they were bringing each other to law courts. You ever seen Christians sue each other in courts? And Paul says, that's, that's shameful. By chapter 6, the Corinthian Christians hadn't been redeemed from their pagan lifestyle. Corinth was known as a sex city. It was a rich city, but it had sex, sex, sex everywhere on its billboards. It had temples, temples everywhere, religiosity everywhere, religiosity everywhere, but immorality side by side with religiosity. How on earth could that happen? Because 2,000 years ago, temples had temple prostitutes, where fertility rites were reenacted to bring about prosperity and fertility into the lives of the people. That happened for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And just in case you think it no longer happens, I was in, on a mission trip to India. And there in Calcutta, I went to look at the work that Mother Teresa was doing and passed by a few temples and passed by one and the, the Indian folk that invited us there were saying to us, you know, the, the, there are still temple prostitutes here in this temple and the ones serving are the, the Dalits, the lowest caste Indians. And by the time the, the daughters are 13 years old, they enter into this. And they've done this job for centuries. Because the Dalits can never climb out of that caste system. You would have thought that, my goodness, that was 2,000 years ago. No friends. And so they had those kind of problems. Problems of sexuality. Problems of sexual immorality in chapter 6. Chapter 7, is it better to be single, better to be married? By chapters 8 to 10, Problems about their freedom. I'm freed in Christ. But Paul tells them, don't use your freedom to sin. By chapters 12 to 14, bang! You enter the heart of the letter because they were squabbling about gifts. Which was the greater gift? Prophecy, where there was interpretation, or tongues, where there is no interpretation. And between 12 to 14, smack in the middle, is chapter 13. Before he finishes off with chapter 15, the power of the resurrection. And so if there was a problematic church, it would be the church in Corinth. Problems about leadership, lawsuits between each other, problems about sexual immorality, the compromise, doing porn if they had their gadgets at that time, was a nothing to them. They normalised immorality, liberty, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, and now gifts. Who is the most spiritual person? And Paul says, all these problems is solved by one virtue, love. If you have love, divine love that has been downloaded to you to the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, you would solve these problems one by one. And so you may preach the cross, but you don't have the love of the cross. So are you ready to listen to this? Paul's panacea and remedy for every problem, big and small, from heart to home to church, is love. It's not Paul's remedy. It's God's remedy through Christ, proclaimed through the gospel. It's whether you're going to believe in that message or not. And so he speaks in the first few verses about the supremacy of love. And then he'll go on to the character of love. And last but not least, the final portion of chapter 13 is about the permanence of love. So firstly, the supremacy of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
So what is Paul doing here? In the temples of that time, and still in the temples of many parts of the world, which I used to go to as one who was brought to temple by my parents, you might see supernatural, spiritual. And what is supernatural and spiritual? As, as long as you witness something inexplicable, you cannot explain it. So you might find mediums or spiritual men fall into a trance. And as they fall into trance, they can speak and do things. And so one of my friends wasn't a Christian then. He came up to me and said, you're a pastor, right? So you're a spiritual man. I said, I'm a pastor, but Christianly, we just are servants of the gospel, right? Not spiritual men. You know why? I just went to Chinatown, my friend said. And in Chinatown, when we have this festivals, this Chinese festival, on the seventh month, we have these things in which uh, there's a stage and there's the, a medium there, and he could put some shaving blades, razor blades into his mouth, this medium. He chewed on them, he bled a little bit, and then he could foretell the future. Person of the person brought financial gifts, and he would foretell your future for you. And so he challenged me, he says, you're a pastor, right? You're a spiritual man. Can you do that? Can you fall in trance and, fall and tell the future? I said, the only time I fall into a trance is usually after lunch. <laughs> and after lunch, when I fall in trance, I can't even tell where, what time I'm going to wake up, let alone foretell your future. <laughs> I didn't sound very spiritual to my friend. That's the problem. The world's idea of spirituality, the world's idea of religiosity, is that the more supernatural it looks, the more inexplicable it is, the more godly it is. And so they had the wrong idea of the God, the most godly person. And Paul was trying, this, was trying to correct them with this panacea. The most godly person in pagan religion, man-made religion, in is inexplicable phenomena that happens in temples. But in Christian spirituality, which is true spirituality, love is spirituality. Love is supreme. And so Paul seems to be erecting a ladder of spirituality. And the bottom rung of that ladder is, yes, you've got great gifts, prophecy. Second step of the ladder, you've got great gifts, uh, great faith. Third rung of the ladder, you've got great philanthropy. I give all I possess to the poor. At the top rung of, the, of spirituality, you have martyrdom. I surrender my body to the flames. And as you climb up this ladder of spirituality, Boy, you, you must be the most godly up here. Paul is not saying there are no tongues. He's not saying there are no, no prophecies. He's not saying there's no faith. He's not, saying, he's not questioning the existence of the gifts, but the use of the gifts. He's not denying the factuality, but the attitude in using the gift for a particular ministry. Did you notice the repetition in the first three verses? I have this, but have not love. I have this, but have not love. I have this, I have not love. And he says, I gain nothing. And he reaches a more frightening conclusion, I am nothing. Not, not simply that he gains nothing from the discharge of this gift and the discharge of this ministry, but he becomes nothing. In other words, he becomes valueless in God's eyes. So I do not know you may have children 
right, who are here, gifted in something, some sport. And Australia is a sporting country. And Melbourne is the sporting capital of Australia. Is that right? It is. That's your claim to fame. I did read up on Melbourne before I came. Right? I repented from loving Sydney. I now love Melbourne. Okay? And so it's the number one sporting city. And let's say your son is really good in footy. Or son is really good in, your child is really good in some sport. Right? Football, hockey, cricket, etc. And so they're in school and they're training. They've trained so hard for this. And they want you, dad and mom and grandpa and grandma to come and watch this game. And guess what? You turn up for the game and it rains. It's a torrential downpour. It washes out the game. Poor chap. He can't show you his skills. Poor chap. He can't show you all the, real, all the practices he's put in with his coach. Poor chap. You know what? There will come another day, a sunny day, in which the full display of his giftedness in a sport will be there for you to, to look at. Paul says something quite different. Whatever gift you have, if you ever exercise it without love, equals to zero. There will not be another day. So I could have led a thousand Bible studies over 33 years, trying to catch up with Gerald. I'm trying to, I mean, I've preached 2,000 sermons over 33 years, but if we did any of that or all of that without love, I'm a zero in God's eyes. We call that divine mathematics. And that's sort of a corrective to all of us that unless we get on our knees to plead and to download the love of God into our hearts through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you and I have no business getting up on our feet. There's only one attitude to the discharge of gifts. Love. Which is other person-centeredness. That God has gifted me with this to serve you to bless you, right? I, when I went to Bible college in Sydney and Moore College, I, I never knew what gift I had. I just had a sense that God was opening the door for me to do this. I've discovered in time, yeah, He's given me perhaps a gift of preaching, perhaps a gift of pastoring. I've got just two, three gifts. You know, one gift that I envy is musicians. I learned to play the guitar and I learned three chords, G, A minor and A minor. And that's all I learned, and I never got to play. I just don't have a gift for that, right? And sometimes when you see people more gifted than you, you envy them. Lord, why don't I have that? If you are given a gift, right, you are servant to people. So you see gifted people in, in DPC, you say, my servant. Not more gifted than me. But God has gifted you to serve me, to serve this body. That's the real purpose of gifting. And so, just in the first part, love is supreme. So in Christian spirituality, love is supreme. And this love is expressed day to day in pretty routine, ordinary, unspectacular ways. Right? So one of our leaders, he's now an elder in our church, when he, they were expecting their first child, he brought his wife, I think, to a hotel to eat at a restaurant there. And as, she was, as they were going to eat at that, that restaurant, she felt nauseous because she was pregnant and was about to throw up. And what do you think he did? He pulled out his shirt and says, don't vomit on the carpet, just vomit here. Vomit on my shirt. Throw up here. What do you call that? Maybe he didn't want to pay for the cleaning for the carpet. 
I'm not sure. But that's pretty selfless, don't you think? I'm going to tell you vomit stories this morning. <coughs> or Chuck story this morning. Uh, one of our staff, uh, he's the caretaker of the church. He brought his kids to, to church on a bus, and the bus stop is about 50 metres from our church. And then one of his sons wasn't feeling too well. As he got off the bus and just got off, he just threw up on the, the seats there. What do you think my staff did? He took off his shirt and wiped off the vomit so that it would not stink out the place. So he came to service shirtless. Have you ever seen a shirtless worshipper? Would you accept him in DPC? Would he be thrown out? <laughs> what do you call those incidences? I don't make them up. They're too good to make up. Too good, right? And so, in the last 30 over years, I've perhaps conducted more than 300 weddings or so. And in a wedding, right? There in Singapore, here in Australia, here in Melbourne, it's, it's normal. The bridegroom waits here. The bride walks in. At least that's normal in Singapore. And I found one thing. No matter how late the bride is, the bridegroom never loses his temper. <laughs> I have never seen a bridegroom lose his temper at a wedding. And so the latest one was the bride got stuck in traffic for about 45 minutes to an hour. She came in, right? And he was smiling. You want to try that in your marriage? <laughs> you arrive five minutes late and your wife thinks, maybe I should serve him a lawyer's letter. <laughs> I could be exaggerating. But how do you greet each other when your spouse comes home from work? How do you greet each other when your children come back from a hard day at, at school? where they could have been bullied? Do they walk into the door and you say, oh, you're home? Of course I'm home! I walk in through the door. I'm not out of the streets. Can you get up from your seat and put that dumb phone down and go and hug that son and hug that daughter or hug that wife that's out there, hug that husband that who's just out there, bring the caveman, bringing in to put bacon on the table? Oh, your husband just came home. Mm. Did his name get changed to mm? <laughs> oh, ah! One day I walked home, my wife was so busy, right? and she was on the phone with somebody trying to solve a ministry problem and said, Ah, my name is Chris, not Ah, not E, Chris. Love in small doses is very routine, very ordinary, very unspectacular. Most of our acts in, in life, in marriage, in family, washing the dishes, mopping the floor, changing the nappies, sponging a feverish child through the night, teaching your children the same lesson again and again, waiting for them endlessly from one class to another class, from one sporting to event another sporting, is love in day-to-day -day living. Amen? And it's not something you want to take for granted. It's not a parent you want to take for granted. It's not a spouse you want to take for granted. It's something that you see as, was it June who was teaching that class? Is it only children that has to be taught about the mercies of God, the grace of God? Then you should open your eyes and thank God for your eyes that you can see colour, right? Is it something just for the children that we adults don't need to appreciate, to be thankful from morning to night? So how do you wake up in the morning and say, what a silly question, Chris. I wake up, I open my eyes. 
then what else comes to your mind? What do you say from that moment onwards? This is how I normally wake up. I wake up, I open my eyes, I give thanks to God for Jesus, and then I turn to my wife and say, thank you for being my wife. I love you. When the children are younger, right, I walk to their room and say, good morning, Jesus is risen, have you? <laughs> Something along those lines, right? No, I don't. I go to their room and say, Jesus has risen, wake up. Dad loves you, mom loves you. We it's all love in small doses, which you shouldn't take for granted, which you should practice more and more, and not just for one and a half hours at a service at DPC at 10.30 a.m. to 12 noon. That's very easy to put on for one and a half hours. You want me to smile for one and a half hours? I can. Look at this. Can you beat this smile? I don't think so. Right? And that's very important that it's not fake, that it's real. So in God's eyes through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, there is no such person as the loveless believer. There is no such thing as the loveless Christian. That is an invention of the devil. The normalization of unlove, the rationalization of lovelessness in your singleness, in your married life, in your family life. Never get used to that. Never get used to unloving thoughts. Never get used to unloving words. And never get used to unloving deeds towards each other. There is no such thing as the unloving church. And that's the challenge for us. Then he moves on to the character of love. He says two things positively. Love is patient. Love is patient, the word patient, is an under-translation of the Greek word. The Greek word actually, actually carries the heavier meaning, the gravitas of love is long-suffering. If your tram is late for five minutes, you are just patient with the late tram. You don't suffer because of the late tram. Maybe you, yeah, maybe you do a little bit. But long-suffering is, being long-suffering is the attitude you have towards trying circumstances and difficult people. The ultimate long-sufferer is God. God has suffered long our pride. God has suffered long our rebellion. God has suffered long our disobedience. And the entire Old Testament showed the long-suffering of a loving God towards Israel, towards His people who two-time against Him. Again and again, they two-time with Him. They fake love in their temple going. Don't do that with God. There's nothing he hates more than nominal love, superficial love, love that, that turns up on a Sunday but has nothing to do with Monday to Saturday. That's not Christian love. And so, love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Kindness is the flip side of long-suffering. And why is it? What is kindness? Kindness is the willingness or the quickness to pay back wrong with right, to pay back bad with good. So we go out and decide to act in kindness, in big-heartedness when people are small-hearted against us. We go out to decide to act in good-heartedness when people are mean-hearted towards us. You put the two things together, love is not an emotion. It's not firstly or mainly an emotion. Love is firstly a commitment. It's something I do with my mind, I do with my heart. 
and then the feelings of love may flow after my decision to love, my decision to forgive, my decision to reconcile. And so it's very important. Right? And so uh, one of our church members in our founding church, his, his father came down with a fierce cancer, pancreatic cancer. You know anything about pancreatic cancer, you don't survive long unless there's a divine, miraculous healing from God. And so Tim Keller just passed on from pancreatic cancer. Three months, six months, a year, max. And so he was diagnosed. His church member's father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We went down to pray for him straight away. And he wasn't a Christian, but we prayed for him. We read scriptures with him. We went to visit again and again. And then in their desperation, they went off to other churches that had healing services and went to one which was perhaps more Pentecostal or charismatic. And the preacher then asked for people to come forward to pray for them. And he, he said he saw a vision of, of this church member's father being healed and him walking through a garden of flowers and he was good of health and he looked so good. Soon after they went there, the father didn't get healed and he passed on. And so I conducted the funeral. And then they went to the pastor of that church. Did you see the vision? Did you hear something from God about my dad? He says, I saw that vision, the pastor said. That vision was true, it was from God. But it was the lack of faith of your pastor and your Presbyterian church that cancelled the vision. They came back and told me that. You think Gerald and myself as Presbyterian pastors don't believe in healing? You think we don't believe, we pray, we, we don't pray with all our hearts when we ourselves fall sick and our loved ones fall sick? Get terminal illnesses? You think we just fake the visitation? It hurts. But it doesn't matter in the light of Jesus and eternity. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. We choose to be good-hearted even when people could be intentionally mean-hearted towards us. And if you are Christian with any salt in your life, you have been a pastor for any salt in life, you will feel the sting of being unloved in return for the love you genuinely give to people. And only the love of Jesus can reverse that. And then he goes through a whole string of what love is not. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Love is not arrogant. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not rude. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered. Do you want me to go through each of them? We will never end. I'll have to come back another time. When we pull it all together, let's go for the first two. Love does not envy. Love is not jealous. Why are you envious? Why do you get jealous? It flows from some sort of inferiority or insecurity about yourself. So as you wake up each morning, do you stand in front of the mirror and say, thank God I look the way I look? Or you think you should look differently? You think you should go to the plastic surgeon? Plastic surgery is a huge thing now. People don't like their eyebrows, they don't like their noses, they don't like so many things about their faces, don't like so... You know, body image is a real curse upon young people, especially young girls. There's a whole billion, trillion dollar industry built on how you look. We as Christians wake up each day and thank God 
Thank God for how I look. Not too bad. You should stand in front of the mirror and say to yourself, not too bad, God, you didn't make a mistake. Right? You didn't make a mistake with me. The whole cosmetic surgery says, God made a mistake. Your eyes are too small. Right? Your ears are too big. Your nose should be higher. Right? Your limbs should be longer. Right? So I had a guy about to marry this girl in church. And, I was, and he said to me, I'm still not sure. I said, what is it you're not sure? She's wonderful in terms of her character, wonderful. She's everything I could ask for. But my dream girl, I said, what was your, what's your image of the dream woman, Miss, Miss Wright? I'm so shy to say it. She should look like Julia Roberts. <laughs> Tall, long hair. And I said to him, you're a China man. <laughs> and you want a tall, long-haired woman? You'll be kissing her neck. <laughs> what a lie for me. She's godly. Marry her. What? Where did you get this image? Of Miss Wright? What? Of Mr. Wright? This whole body form thing, this envious. There was a lot of envy and jealousy going between the prophetic group and those who spoke in tongues. And so it goes on. I can only but summarize. Love, never full of self. Right, love is, if you don't have love, you're full of self. You're empty of others. But if you have love, you empty yourself so that others can be filled up with your other person's centeredness. The church in Corinth had not allowed for the true the true fruit of the gospel to take root in their hearts. I must finish. The last portion, he talks about this. Verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What's he saying? Paul is portraying the Christian life as a pilgrimage. Pilgrim's progress from the kindergarten of faith to the university of faith. So think about it. He's saying to the Corinthian Christians, you're still childish. You ever said to somebody, you're still childish? You turn to your neighbor and say to them, you're still childish. I'll never be invited back to this church. I'm very sure. You never turn to people and say you're childish. Right? Paul says that. He says that to them. So when you turn to children, I've got two grandkids sitting here. Right? You say to children when they are playing with the toys and they squabble about their toys or they play in the playground, they get into a fight, they are not in a team somewhere and you say to them as a parent, as an uncle, as an auntie, as a grandparent, when are you going to grow up and realise there's life beyond toys, life beyond playgrounds? Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians, when are you going to grow up and realise there's life beyond gifts? Life beyond ministry. It's called love. And when you become a Christian, you enter the kindergarten of love, and then you slowly go to junior school, high school, and university, and the words of Paul Tripp from America, you will remain an undergraduate of love for the rest of your life. You never graduate from the university of love. From day to day, you will learn how unloving you are and how loving Jesus is. From moment to moment, from incident to incident, in your married life, in your family life, in your church life, you will cry out to God and say, Oh, help me, God! 
I can't even love my wife. I can't even love my children. I can't even love my father who gave up so much for me. That's the kindergarten. And that's the university. And love is permanent, you know why? Between the triune God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they have eternally always been in love. And that love expressed in the serving of each other and unity. That's another story altogether, the Trinitarian God. And though the cross is not mentioned in chapter 13, Paul surely has the cross in mind. By chapter 15, he goes for the juggler. What I receive of first importance, I pass on to you. That Christ died according to the Scriptures. That Christ rose according to the Scriptures. And the whole thing about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the full revelation of God in Him, is not just His death on the cross, but His resurrection from the dead. And from His resurrection from the dead, He pours out the Spirit of God so that we would love each other. And in 1 John, God's love, which is perfect within Himself, which is perfect when He downloaded it at the cross, is now being made perfect when we love each other. That God is waiting for His love to be perfected when we, who call ourselves believers in Jesus, love, forgive, and spur each other on to love and good deeds. What has God been looking for? He's been looking for love when He made men and women in His image. He called Israel to love Him with all her heart and mind and soul and strength and to love neighbour as expression of it. God never found it in Israel. But when Jesus, the true Israelite, turned up, God's love in fullness in a man, bleeding, dying on the cross, not for anything He had done, but for everything you have done and I have done, in thought, in word and deed, was accomplished on the cross. It is finished, Father. It is finished. This thing that the human race is not capable of doing, the loving of you, the loving of others. So we are called to love. Amen? So I pray and hope that even that this could be my last time I'm here because I've asked you to do funny things like, like what? Turn to people around you and say funny things like, I pray that love will grow in your hearts. Love will grow in your marriages. Love will grow in your families. And love will grow in DPC. And the numbers that will come here numerically and spiritually will blossom. And Donville Presbyterian Church will be a greater witness beyond Donville. You believe that? I'm saying that so that Gerald can buy me lunch. <laughs> so our son is here. He was in primary school. First year in primary school. And I was late in picking him up. We have afternoon school there. Two sessions. One session in the morning from 7.30am to 1pm. 1 Next session in the afternoon from 1.30pm to 6.30pm. So I was so late in picking him. By the time I drove into the car park, not at the school, but adjacent to the school, I could see that his teacher who was standing with him had given up and was walking away from him. So I ran up to him and I apologised. I don't know, I was caught up with a meeting or counselling. But I got down to his level. He was only six, uh, seven years old and said to him, his name is Shen. 
Chen Chen, Dad is so sorry. I'm so sorry that I'm late. Then he said something to me and I paraphrase. It's okay, Dad. I always knew you would come. I always knew you would come. You knew you feel like a failure as a father, as a mother, as a husband each day. But the one who receives your love, sincere love, can always depend on that love. Love never fails. Love never fails. Believe in this love. Allow me to pray. All that God says to us in this word is true. And we want to confess that left to ourselves without your grace, without your mercy, we would be unloving in thought, will, and deed. To the very people you gave us to love, we find ourselves being unloving from morning to night. We find ourselves irritable, frustrated, so short with the people within our own circles. Heavenly Father, we are so sorry. We thank you that in the fullness of time you have given us Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you are love in all this perfection and fullness. Thank you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, for pouring out your Spirit. And we pray for your Spirit to rekindle in us, to reproduce in love, the love of Jesus, to experience in small bites that all deeds, small deeds done with great love, is what pleases you. So we pray for this, for this to be experienced in our hearts, for this repentance to be experienced, for this redemption to be experienced, so that we would indeed live with such delight and joy that we are the beloved people of God. And we pray that being so loved by you, we will experience the joy of loving others and serving others. I pray this for Donville Presbyterian Church. I pray this for every single person here, young or old, single, married, all in families. And we ask that we will be a shining witness of this love. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.